yo, welcome to another episode of Sacred Cinema with me, your host, Jimmy Bernasconi on 2XFM, People Powered Radio. Uh, on today's show, we're going to be taking a look at some cinematic depictions of masks. Okay, listen up. We're gonna we're gonna start off with a little exercise this week. Sometimes we do this, uh, sometimes we don't. I think this week it works quite well. All right, I want you to listen to my voice. Shut your eyes if you can. If you're listening in a place where it's safe to close your eyes, I want you to think of someone very close to you, someone that knows you very well, or at least you think they do. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a lover. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's your puppy. Just close your eyes. I want you to think of what five words they would use to describe you. What what would be the five words in order as well from from uh, from you know at the top of the list being the word that describes you the best all the way down, going from there. I want you to think really hard about that. How would you be described by this person, this specific person? Okay. Maybe you've only got three words, four words, one word. That's okay. I want you to think about another person now. Maybe somebody that knows you a little less or maybe they know you in a different way, in a different context, but still someone that is quite familiar with you. Okay. Now, I want you to think, what five words would they use to describe you? And and again, what order would that be in? Write it down if you can. You don't really have to. Once you've done that, I want you to compare the lists. Are they the same? Or at least if I kept asking you that, if I kept giving you different people and asking you what would they think of you and what would the next person or the next person or the next person, eventually we're going to get some discrepancies, aren't we? And we're going to start having to think, why is that? Is it because they have a certain view of the world? They have a certain prejudice? Or is it that we present ourselves to other people in different ways? Do we talk about certain things with certain people and then other things with other people? What positions do we take with some people? And what positions do we take with other people? Why do we do that? Does that help or hinder us? Or in what circumstances does it, does, does it do that? Well, in this week's uh, show, we're going to be talking about films that use the metaphor of a mask. They all have literal masks in them, or at least the characters in the films uh, literally wear masks or things that come cover their face. And we're going to talk about what are the implications for those characters? Why are they doing that? Or at least why are those masks being forced upon them? Who has the power in each of those situations uh, is also quite important. And, and I guess when we're talking about the implications, I mean, how do these people feel disassociated from themselves? And is that always, a, you know, is, is that ever a good thing or is it mostly a bad thing? What are the ramifications when we're not our true self? But what does that even mean? All right, I think when we're talking about faces and expressions and presenting oneself to the world, we do have to call back a couple of weeks. We talked about uh, the duality of man many, many weeks ago. We talked about the idea of there being a, you know, a, a duality or a, or a dynamism. There's, a, there's two parts to every identity or, or perhaps everyone is multifaceted. Um, I think we moved on to Mulholland Drive eventually in, in that uh, talk and talked about the way that there, there is no one set rigid version of uh, any given person. We use words like persona 
Oh, I very often use the word personality and that sort of thing, or, or shadow. But we, we're, very, we're very often referring to different sides, different angles, different shades of the same person. And what are the implications of that sort of thing? But today we're talking specifically about the metaphorical meaning of masks. Now, as always, we like to go back through history into the you know the ancient times, look at the the major religions and literature and those sort of things. How, when is when have masks? been explored or used in the past. Well, I think masks, or at least makeup, I think one of, might be one of the few things. I'm no, I'm no renowned anthropologist. However, I did study a couple of subjects um, in, in the discipline. But uh, I believe that masks, or at least makeup, changing one's facial uh, structure, is, is one of the few things that I think all recorded societies and cultures have done to some extent, either in rituals or during hunting or that sort of thing, that, that it really is one of the deepest aspects of the human spirit to present oneself in, a, in various different ways. And if we zoom forward through history, I suppose we see a lot of that today. Uh, no prizes for guessing uh, through which... Um, uh, through which aspect of modern life do we sometimes present ourselves in a way that is perhaps filtered? Of course, social media is all about presenting certain personas. And, and we're having various accounts on various different platforms. We're various different people. I know myself, the person I am on Facebook is very often different to the person I am on Instagram, very different to the person I am on many other um many other social media platforms. So let's have a deep dive into, you know, what these stories of the silver screen can tell us about masks and their metaphorical meaning. The first film we're going to have a look at is a French film from 1960, directed by Georges Franju, and that would be Eyes Without a Face, or Les Yours Sans Visage. We're then going to move on to a more modern film. This one is from 2014, an Austrian film, a psychological horror directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. And that, of course, would be Goodnight Mummy. If you haven't seen that one or haven't seen the trailer, don't go looking up right away. It's uh, got some pretty freaky imagery in it, but it's definitely worth a watch, as we'll get into in just a moment. And then we're going to finish off with a 1920 film, written, produced, and starring the great Douglas Fairbanks, that, of course, would be The Mask of Joro. Uh, but to begin with, let's get started with Georges Franju's 1960 film, Eyes Without a Face. Uh, so if you're not too familiar with this one, uh, it sort of centers on two main characters, one being Dr. Genesia and his daughter, Christiane. And in essence, what's happened is a little bit complex, but I'll just give you the basic breakdown, the basic premise is that Christiane was in a pretty horrible uh, car accident and um, uh, her, her face is a bit disfigured. And her father, who is a plastic surgeon, and goes about um, certain questionable uh, ways to get her a new face, essentially. And he, well, he essentially he abducts women that look similar to her and, 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 and transplants their faces onto her face. Now, when the film did come out, there was, um, there was a bit of controversy uh, around it being fairly gory and that sort of thing. But, you know, us modern sickos, we've seen kind of everything at this point. Um, we kind of deal. It was not so bad if you watch it in, in modern context. But there are some pretty um, graphic scenes. I will say, if you are someone that has seen the Pedro Almo, Almodovar uh, film, The Skin I Live In, it might 
might sound very familiar. Uh, there's no doubt a lot of influence uh, of this film on that one. And if you haven't seen that film, can I please recommend that you watch this one first? It's almost like a sequel in a way. Not not really, but there's so much shared imagery and, and similar themes and that sort of thing. Very two different films, uh, I think, by the end, different themes and different questions being explored. But so much influence, so much inspiration from this film, obviously, on uh, Mr. Almodovar's work. Um, but moving forward with the plot of this one. Um, this is set in this really interesting house. Now, uh, I, I often talk about houses on this show because I think very often houses have a metaphorical value for one's psyche or the psy- or the, the protagonist's psyche. Uh, and in this film, it's it's a very contained house uh, and there's specifically one room itself that is quite contained. Obviously, we, in, when, you, when you're looking at a film that's set uh, largely in a, in a surgery theatre in, 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 in one of those, you know, he's got one in his house. Um, that's obviously very contained and concentrated on, on a single focal point, and, and you know there's quite a, you know quite a lot of serious concentration on on one tiny little focal point. So we have this idea of zoning in on one specific thing a lot of the time in this in this film. But I, spe- I specifically want to talk about the basement now um, because he's a scientist, uh, Doctor Genesis. He um, he has houses all these dogs. Or I suppose he imprisons all these dogs in this basement, and the architecture of this basement it's all, it's all concrete. It's, it's almost meant to be soundproof. It, it isn't. But it's it's got this um, you know it's almost like a triangular roof with these big concrete pillars and all of the dogs which are quite big uh, and and loud and aggressive um, they're in these really that ch- you know they're enclosed within these really chunky bars and this is specifically in the basement and if you've seen the Guillermo del Toro film um, Crimson Peak it's quite similar to the basement or this similar to the setup uh, in that film where you know the basement has sort of got this metaphorical value of being Doctor Genesis you know uh, those the, the you know the, the compartment of all his 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 hidden secrets the things that he locks away and of course when we're talking about imprisoning dogs that's sort of the you know the epitome of of imprisoning innocence so deep deep within uh dr genesis uh, psyche in a way i don't mean to say that this metaphor is so um you know, cut and dry, but you could read uh, this aspect of the film to be, you know, deep within his psyche is a, a suppression of the innocent, or at least um, apathy towards the innocent, or ignorance of uh, the beauty of innocence and, and letting innocent things roam free. So, Obviously, uh, in talking about that, let's move on to his daughter, Christiane. Now, she is constantly told to wear the mask, uh, this this mask, this creepy mask um, that her father keeps telling her to wear while she still has her disfigured face. Uh, and then once... Um, well, I won't get ahead of myself too quickly. That's obviously got some metaphorical value to it as well. I think this film definitely serves uh, as a bit of a feminist te- uh, text. Obviously, it comes out in 1960, a uh, French film. Um, but you've got this idea of, of, of this patriarchal figure constantly telling uh, this young girl, this, this young developing girl, don't let the world see your face as it is. Um, you need to put this mask on that is plain. Um, it's not coarse. Uh, it's smooth. It's uh, conventional. This is what you need to show to the world uh, and then building on that as well once he does finally peel off a face of another person and put it on her um, her body rejects it so we have this other metaphor going on there where you know you can't force someone to be someone that they're not you know you can't make them be this pretty little girl uh, when their body or their, their, their more you know the core of them or their more pure self rejects that that they want them to be something else or that they are at their core somebody else you know that, that, that's quite a rich metaphor I don't want to get too deep into the metaphorical uh, too early in the show, but I really did want to say as well, her name is Christiane, and I'm sure that's deliberate. I'm sure that there's some kind of 
uh, religious uh, thing going on. You know, we've got this idea of, um, you know, her being a Christian, um, this idea of indoctrination, this idea of, of being forced to put on a certain face to adopt a certain persona. I suppose religion has that quality. It gives you this set of rules and it says you've got to be this kind of person, or at least Christ serves as a kind of person that the religion influences you to be or, or pushes you to be when we have um you know archetypes that you know that 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 prescribe or we're prescribed to live out the life of an archetype in, in a religious context it is like putting on another face or or going through a journey through which we we learn to put on another face so obviously 1960s people are flipping boards all over the place i'm not sure if the metaphor still holds up personally but i just thought it would be worth mentioning because it was something that did um crop up in my mind while i was watching the film so I suppose to summarize Eyes Without a Face in, in, in terms of our mask discussion, um, masks are sort of representative, or can be, I should say, can be representative of imprisonment, where we're forced to be someone that we're not. And obviously uh, the film has to end, well, you know, ending in, um, in, in a positive way. Um, the film ends, I don't want to give it away, the, the, the final act of the film is, is an act of liberation. And we see uh, quite a qu- comprehensive uh, act of liberation take place. But I won't give up uh, too much because you might want to go out and see the film if you haven't already. And uh, it's quite an interesting um, end to the film. But moving on to the next one, are there other ways in which masks can inhibit us? Or are there other depictions of masks in cinema uh, where we see some inhibitions uh, taking place or some prohibitions uh, coming into place because of mask wearing? At this point, I'd like to move on to Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala's 2014 film, Goodnight, Mummy. Now, I might just give a word of warning. Uh, this film was a little bit notorious when it came out because the trailer was running around the internet and people were just freaking out uh, just because of the sheer imagery of it. Um, so just a word of warning, if you don't like scary movies, this one is quite, this one is quite scary. At least I remember the first time I saw it, I was very, very nervous to watch it. Uh, and I will say up front as well, it is definitely a film that you, I, I can I just recommend you watch it twice because it, it, I think it, it, you don't really get the full, you know, it's a bit like Fight Club where you don't really get the full, uh, meaning of it, or at least you don't get all the little bits and pieces, I think until you watch it a second time. I have watched it two times and I can definitely attest to that. So just, uh, that's just a bit of a forewarning before we get into it. But if you, if you haven't seen the film or you're never going to see it, I'll give you a bit of a brief outline of the plot. Um, basically, there's two sons, uh, Elias and Lucas, and they are living in uh, an Aus- Austrian countryside um, house, uh, quite a luxurious house. We'll get into that in just a moment. And uh, their mum returns back from surgery. And she's got these bandages all over her face. And I will say this this imagery is straight up borrowed from um, the imagery in Eyes Without a Face when the characters are running around uh, after the surgery and they've got the bandages on. And then, and you, the thing what you can do in cinema with the band, or I guess in theatre as well, um, with bandages is you can sort of emphasise a greater, um, not eye line, but the outline of someone's eyes and the outline of certain facial features. So this mum is running around this whole time with these almost like these giant... Predator. I say predator because I think you know the human instinct takes over a little bit when you watch this film. And you're like, oh my goodness, she really she looks like she's gonna come and get me. And she's got this big, almost sinister smile that's outlined by um, by the bandages. And I mean, at first it's really freaky, but then you sort of get used to it throughout the film. Um, but she see, she comes home and the two boys um, grow sort of increasingly suspicious about her. She's being very rude to one of them in particular, and she's being extremely strict and and stern, uh, which is very different to the way she used to be. Uh, and we we learn that because they listen to these uh, recordings of her, um, you know, singing them lullabies. Uh, and, and there's this real motif of lullabies. And, and I think that's very, 
I, I think it's very, I, I mean, I'm not German or Austrian, and we have a couple of listeners that listen in from Germany, so we'd love to hear from you. Um, I think lullabies are a real cultural, uh, not cultural phenomenon, but very key to the culture over there. I know, like, obviously, Jans Brahms, he wrote the, the, the famous lullaby, you know, the... He wrote that, and that's at the beginning of the film, of course. So, so we really get this idea of motherhood and the relationship between mother and son, um, which is arguably maybe the epitome of trustworthiness, or or uh, the, the, the is that maybe the the closest bond um, in in Western in Western canonical uh, literature. So, when the boys start becoming become more and more suspicious of their mother, um, that's very much exaggerated by the fact that not only are they suspicious, but they're they're, they're young boys suspicious of their mother. Like, that's a really uh, big deal, right? If you're suspicious of your mother, you must be extremely suspicious um, to begin with. And I think, you know, I mentioned before that the house is quite luxurious. Uh, I want to give credit here to a friend of mine, uh, Mr. Al Thorne, that very often talks about this idea of, um, well, this modern uh, way of making horror films where you set them in a luxurious, uh, there's sort of these kind of minimalistic, modernist, uh, you see it in things like Ex Machina have that, um, The Gift, the Joel Edgerton film has a little bit of that, Gone Girl's got a little bit of it as well. The idea of setting films today not in you know um whimsical gothic mansions but in these these minimalist modern luxurious um houses so as again to emphasize how uh, crazy things are you know the the image of blood on a nice white leather couch um is, is quite a jarring image so we definitely have a little bit of that going um in this film so i guess in this way in, in good night mummy the mask or the bandages all over the mum's face are an inner an inhibition uh of her trust or they're an, it's an inhib- inhibitor of trust uh, and, and creates distrust. And, and it's almost fair. So we're, so we're there with the boys. We can't help but feel that we can't trust this person unless they give us their true self, right? Unless you reveal your most pure self, unless you reveal um, your true personality, not a facade, not a persona that you present to the world, um, you know, when, until we see actions that are representative of your most pure self, we, we are as humans kind of untrustworthy. And this becomes weaponized um, throughout the film. And, and, and that's sort of an interesting message in there, or at least you, I think you could extract a really interesting message from there. As the boys become increasingly suspicious and not content that this woman is actually their mother, they actually start weaponizing masks of their own. And they have these creepy tribal masks. And this does sort of call back uh, to the discussion we had at the beginning of the show. We talk about the idea of masks being something that have um, been used in, in all cultures and all societies. Um, you know, we think of a tribal mask. We think of something that exaggerates or amplifies um, the... The self or a version of the self or a facet of the self. You might wear a mask uh, going into war uh, as a means to intimidate um, your opposition, the person you're fighting, right? It is to emphasize or amplify uh, that that warrior within you. And we see that. So this is a different kind of distrust, I think. Intimidation or the amplification of that aggressive side of oneself is another way that we can use masks. We can present ourselves to be someone that is much more dangerous than we actually are. And of course, that does bring about um, quite a lot of distrust, not only uh, in, 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 in real life, but in the film, you know, all over the place. So by the end of this film, we get this idea that, you know, that that distrust or or, or um, a sort of vulnerable trust or when we when we 
ask for trust, but it's not warranted, or, or, or we can't prove why it's warranted, or, or, or why it should be guaranteed to us. That sort of begets further distrust from our counterparts, who then could perhaps reciprocate. And we get into this sort of downward spiral of, if you lie to me, I'll lie to you, and by me lying to you, you'll lie to me, and, and, and constantly and constantly. So, so it's almost like we get this idea that the more that we don't present our true self, our most pure self, the more the rest of the world isn't going to do that them themselves. I, I think if you if you think about you know controversial opinions and things that you don't want to admit about yourself to other people, you know if you're not vulnerable to someone else, they're not going to be vulnerable around you. And if you are fake around people, well they're not going to give you your their true self because they're kind of giving you a uh, free reign to exploit them in a way. So it's an interesting one for that. Um, but of course, I, I please I do emphasize you watch this film all the way to the end and then rewatch it um, because you know there's a lot we're gonna have to leave out in the park uh, today. Because I, but I don't want to sort of get too much into it. Um, because you know, it's got quite a, a brilliant effect as a modern film. Um, but you know, so far we've talked about masks to be something that you know, um, uh, you know, are forced on us. Uh, that, that, that they that they are they, they they limit us. They they um they inhibit us. Can we use masks for good? Is there a reason why we're always using masks throughout history uh, in all these different cultures and societies? Can they ever be something that are be- that is beneficial uh, to the rest of the world or to the to the world at large? And at this point, I'd like to move on to our third and final film for today's discussions, and that would be The Mask of Zorro from 1920. Uh, this one, of course, directed. Uh, sorry, of course. Uh, produced, written, and starring Douglas Fairbanks, but is actually directed by Fred Niblo. So if you haven't seen the film, I uh, can't blame you. It's not like one of those films that, um, you know, film schools or, 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 you know, the great directors recommend watching. It is sort of like a little bit of like a, you know, the early days of Hollywood. Uh, it's kind of like the OG Marvel movie in a way. You know, Douglas Fairbanks was sort of known to be this adventurous, um, uh, you know, actor. Uh, and, he, you know, he's in pirate movies and, and, and it actors as a thief and, and Zorro and that sort of thing. But I thought it'd be worth going back to for that very reason, because we are in amidst um, a time in, in, cinematic, in cinematic history where we're obsessed with superheroes and of course we're talking superheroes we're talking about masked characters and I thought we could go back to the original one to break down the origins to to look at where it all comes from why do they all wear masks um, and, and what's the significance within you know each of their given stories so this is sort of the you know ground zero of masked uh, superhero movies uh, and, and it's basically uh, you know a Zorro movie if you've seen the Antonio Banderas one or I mean it's, it's a guy that runs around uh, wearing a mask and a cape um, you know like, in a, like a, in a Robin Hood sort of way um, saving the oppressed, and I thought it was really interesting. There's so much emphasis on the word oppressed in all of the um, uh, all of the subtitles and, and, and everything in this film. So you know, I, I always thought that, that was kind of like a modern concept, but but no, the, the idea of you know fighting back against oppression has always been something that's that's clearly uh, you know been a big deal in, in the culture, or at least in Western culture. Um, but I quickly want to talk about um, uh, the fact that our, our Zorro character, his, his real name in real life is Don Diego. And of course, in this film, um, we get that classic dual personality thing. Zorro is this super cool, sexy hero guy that, that steals everyone. And Don Diego in, in real life is sort of this bumbling fool. He is rich which is important to mention. And obviously there's a lot of connections here to Bruce Wayne and Batman. We might get onto that in just a second, but, but in both personas or sorry, I shouldn't say both personas, but in both contexts, both the Zorro and Don Diego, our protagonist lacks 
a respect for his own ego, right? As Zoro, he, he he's not claiming to be anyone. He's staying mysterious. He's staying hidden. So that that that's, that sort of is an egoless task. But also, as Don Diego, he's 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 very you know he's a, he's a fool. He doesn't really attract um, much credit. Uh, we don't see him and and consider him to be. Oh, you know, while he is very rich, um, that, that 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 all the all the wealth that he has hasn't corrupted his soul. He is still very friendly to people and sort of very kind uh, and harmless. And interestingly. Um, you know the, the woman. Uh, you know the the, the 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 woman who falls in love with Zorro um, doesn't fall in love with Don Diego. You know she wants the guy that doesn't need uh, any credit for his heroism, uh, but she also doesn't want the guy um, that that sort of you know is a bit limp, is a bit lame, that doesn't really present himself to be heroic. So you know we've got this interesting uh, love triangle there. But I want to sort of get into the reason why he has to wear a mask, right? Because. Um, we, we see it throughout all these different superhero movies, and and I think in like things like Spider Man, they talk about the idea that you know it's it's so that you know the bad guys can't attack the ones that they love and things like that. But I think that's more a symptom or or something that is secondary to something that's a little bit more deep. And and, and what I think it really is getting at is the idea that that goodness, the idea of doing something that's good or benevolent, you know, that that, that is positive, um, the goodness of an act is is further amplified, right? An act can be 10 out of 10 good, but 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 it can still be further amplified or further exaggerated if the performer, if the person, the if the actor um if their credit, their person, you know, the, the power that we attribute them for doing the act is diminished, right? So that's sort of this in another way it's, we can say it like this, the archetypal act of good, you know, that the most good thing that one person can do is is to do something that is purely good and that we do while we're anonymous. And I think the reason for that is that when we are a hero, heroism guarantees this this sense of power, as we just mentioned. You know, you gain some kind of credit or merit or status and support. And and we see that in in real life that when someone does something good, we almost give we you know, we always make us we almost make ourselves vulnerable by putting too much trust in them. And they can always turn on us. You know, by being multifaceted as people, um, there is always this this. this potential that someone could turn around and then be um, malevolent after being benevolent. We obviously say that now, politicians, that sort of thing. And, and that's why these heroes have to remain anonymous. That's where we get this white, uh, this white knight, dark knight dichotomy in, in, a, in a film like Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight. You know, if, if someone presents themselves as mortal, they're simultaneously presenting themselves as flawed. So if they can continue to present themselves as an idea, as a concept, and not an actual person, just like you know, a lot of those major religious figures, right? You know, Know, which very often steer us away from idolatry because they know that we're, you know, if we if we idolize mere mortals, then we're we're inevitably going to be let down. That's what the hero has to do. They actually do need to mask themselves to make sure that people don't put absolute trust in someone that might exploit them with all that trust later on in history. And and even and in this film, we do actually find out that you know the, 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 all the characters in the film do find out that the, that Zorro is actually Don Diego. But it's not until that doesn't happen. That isn't revealed until all of you know uh, until the bad guy is put away and all of the the the, the, the populace, all of the commoners have 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 have, have massed together um, to, to to defeat this oppressive guy. So it's only until the public have been given the power, until the public retain their power, that Don, that Don Diego can reveal himself. And even still, in the final shot of this film, which is so uh, perfect, he goes to kiss the girl who finally realizes that he's actually Zara and she is in love with him after all he puts he's, he's been doing all these handkerchief tricks the whole movie he keeps doing all these funny rabbit things with his handkerchief
handkerchief. And in the final kiss, you know, to finish the film, he puts the the handkerchief in front of his and her face. And there's this wind blowing up that's almost, um, you know, blowing it up so that we can actually see they're about to kiss. And it's not just a tongue-in-cheek joke about how, oh, we don't want, you know, it's 1920, we don't want to see people kissing, that's that's gross. I think it's this idea that, you know, kissing the pretty girl at the end of the movie is a pretty cool thing to do, right? So deep within his soul, he's saying, you know, I don't want to take credit. I don't want you to attribute to me too much power, too much responsibility over other people for doing these cool things, for being a bit of a player, being a cool guy. I want the things that I do that are good, that are impressive, to be in the shadows, to be hidden from people. I want you to feel that, you know, you that you are protected by someone that isn't doing so um, to gain some kind of social clout, to gain status in the system. So to wrap everything up, I, I, we do have to, you know, go back and mention that masks can definitely be quite imprisoning. It can be a way that we can put masks on people or people can put masks on us to make us feel like we're a different kind of person than what we actually are. And in that sense, and, and in plenty of other contexts and in other ways, masks can, in, can inhibit us from gaining trust from other people, even if it's not our fault, even if, even if masks have been put on us um, this is almost the you know the, the secondary tragedy of someone putting a mask on us that that that, that disallows us from every, from from being able to attract trust from other people. But let's not say that masks are all out a bad thing. You know that 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 by 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 ridding ourselves of the ego. Right. By putting a mask on, we can actually be a vehicle for heroism, for justice. We can transcend what mere models, the, the, the restrictions that mere models generally have to deal with. So in a way, perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to disassociate ourselves from disassociating ourselves from our actions. So that's been Sacred Cinema for this week. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, on 2XXFM People Powered Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to get in contact with us, please find us on Facebook by searching Sacred Cinema with Jimmy Bernasconi. Cheers.